This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. I want to begin by asking a question and making a statement, both of which I'll return to later. The question, what kind of democratic society the statement, we are in this together. To say we are in this together sounds quaint in a politically polarized era, but I personally still cling to the preamble of the Constitution, which I think should be referenced more. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a perfect community, establish justice, Tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and on to posterity. Ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. We the black woman in North Carolina, who was a plaintiff in the case North Carolina NAACP versus McCrory, which was heard this past summer in the U.S. District Court in Winston-Salem. And any day now, a ruling will come down from this case. The defendant is the governor of the state of North Carolina. The case involves a North Carolina voting law that was passed shortly after the Court's decision in Shelby v. Holder. The law requires that voters have certain government issued IDs, reduces the number of days for early voting, does not permit registering and voting on the same day, disallows county votes that were cast in the wrong precinct, and ends the practice of pre registering teenagers who are 16 and 17. Mrs. Eaton, who has made use of early voting days, claims that the law violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But for the decision of Shelby County v. Holder, Mrs. Eaton would not be a plaintiff in a lawsuit about voting rights. How did we get to this place? Before I tell that story, I'd like us to think about our experiences of voting. Maybe something we've never talked about. She was one of the first African Americans registered to vote in the North Carolina. As soon as she reached the age of eligibility, Mrs. Eaton traveled to the county courthouse to register to vote. The literacy test for African Americans consisted of reciting the preamble, which she did successfully. From that moment on, she assisted other black citizens to register and to vote. She was also active in the NAACP. Some morning, she awoke, looked out the window, and saw that small crosses had been burned on the front lawn. One morning, she woke up and saw that a bullet had hit just below her bedroom window. She wasn't sure for 40 years as an assistant poll worker for 20 years, she was a precinct judge. That was her experience. 
experience of voting. Mine? Different. Yeah, it is. On election day, I knew my parents would go vote in a nearby apartment building, and then the three of us would go to a Presbyterian church for the annual election day pork and sauerkraut dinner. I got green beans, not sauerkraut. Never, ever thought about safety. Never thought that, oh, what do people do who can't walk to their polling place who don't have a car? My first presidential ballot was an absentee ballot for Gerald Ford, which looking mm -hmm. back, I just have to study. Study. My, my father would like really like But to file an absentee ballot, you had to gather information. In fact, you favored those In grad school, my studies in part focused on suffragists, about, about the mining variable, and a light bulb went on. And then I caught a commercially read Why We Can't Wait by Dr. King. Another light bulb went on. The light bulb continued to go on. Thank you. Some people have a life spiral burst. I have a kind of holy whisper in my ear. You need to wake up and smoke up. Or as my southern college friends at my course would say, I bless your heart. <laughs> I continue to learn more about voting and about racism. When I was working one summer in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, I was given the task of calling parents of black school children in Mississippi to discuss allegations that parents were making about discriminatory treatment of their children. Mother and I were talking, and at one point I expressed shock at what she was telling me, and her reply was, how old are you? I was embarrassed. I should have known better. My high school basketball team was majority and I had heard racial epithets yelled at my teenagers. My grandfather was forced to leave Gallatin, New Mexico by the Ku Klux Klan. I should have known better. Until I returned to Washington State in 2011, voting had always meant going to a polling place. Don't even get me started about voting by yourself or not. Right? But anyway, voting, voting has always meant being with the people. I have always had a car to go to the polling station. I've always had a flexible working schedule so I could vote on election day. There were no early voting days. I had the time and the education to read a newspaper to know where to go. The one wrinkle came in the 2000 presidential election when I had to wait 45 minutes to vote. Such a hard time. Our experience of voting have not been and are not the same. Why should we not consider our different life circumstances expanding access to the ballot? Selma, Alabama will forever stand as a reminder of that. Before the Shelby County decision, there was Selma. This year, we commemorated the 50th anniversary of two very important events related to voting, Bloody Sunday and the signing of the Voting Rights Act. The history is familiar. The past the 15th Amendment in 1870, giving freed slaves the vote, but it 
came fear at the end of reconstruction and rejection of Jim Crow laws that Southern white politicians were intent on keeping black citizens voting, poll taxes, literacy tests, hostile registrars were among the legal acts of domestic terrorism against black citizens, house, farm, and church burnings and bombings, beatings, and the ultimate tragedy of lynchings. Rosa Parks in Alabama tried three times to register to vote. On the third time, she passed the test and then had to pay a dollar fifty poll tax, which black citizens had to pay retrospectively. So she had to pay $16.50. At the age of 42, she was finally able to register in 1945. The right to vote is mentioned five times in the Constitution, 14, 15, 19, 24. The regulation of the election, registration requirements, when you go, time of day, so forth and so on, is left to the state. This is sort of crazy approach we have voting. Alabama had among the most racist laws regarding voting. She changed those laws to the rights activists, among them John Lewis, 25 years old, and Amelia Morton Robinson, 54 years old, who had been working for civil rights since the 30s, joined other marchers on March 7, 1965, and walked across the Edmund By the way, I just found out recently that in the back of the pack, Due to technical difficulties, recording was interrupted at this point of the presentation. We will now rejoin the event in progress. Lost Mrs. Robinson this year in August at the age of 104. This past March, she and John Lewis accompanied the president across the bridge. I had the opportunity to be in Selma for this commemoration had the opportunity to hear Reverend William Barber, president of the North Carolina NAACP, speak in Brown Chapel, who's the staging area for the marches. What a speaker. On Sunday morning, dear friends and I stood at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and we had church, three hours of church, watching the Sunday morning service at Brown Chapel on a jumbotron. One of the speakers was then Attorney General Eric Holder, who reminded the congregation how serious voting is. He spoke so passionately that I thought then, and I still think now, that if I don't ever vote, he will find me. And he has the time now to do that. At the end of the service, my friends and I walked across the bridge. That Sunday, on the bridge, I really did feel that we the people are in this together. After Selma, I visited my mother at her retirement community. I mentioned to one of her friends that I had been in Selma and, and was told, you need to talk to Olive. I introduced myself to Olive, an elderly white woman, who told me that she was, was living in Washington, D.C. in 1965 on the night of Bloody Sunday, listened to Dr. King's plea that clergy and others come to Selma to join the next march. She said, I felt like he was talking to me. 
She went right to the airport and caught a flight to Atlanta. When she got on the plane, she realized that most everyone on that late night flight to Atlanta was going to Selma. Arriving in Atlanta, she ended up in a rental car with six other people, one a recruiter from New York City, and they drove straight to Brown Chapel. On March, on March 9, 1955, she was among the marchers in the second march, and she said she was afraid. She was afraid of what might happen. There wasn't a court injunction at that moment in allowing the march. The state trooper stepped aside. Dr. King, now in Selma and at the front of this march, knelt down, prayed, got up, and asked the marchers to go back. Olive returned to Brown Chapel and was surprised to see her son. He was driven all the way from Yale to the She returned to Washington, D.C., but her husband and daughter joined the march when it began again on March 21st, reaching Montgomery on March 25. Meet people. In 1957, Dr. King delivered a speech entitled, Give Us the Ballot. It took eight long years and sacrifices of so many before a Voting Rights Act was considered by Congress. Very famous speech by President Johnson, Congress four days after Bloody Sunday, the President said this, There is no Negro problem, there is no Southern problem, there is no Northern problem, there is only an American problem. And we are met here tonight as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans. We are met here as Americans to solve that problem. Open your polling places to all your people. Extend the rights of citizenship to every citizen of this land. The Voting Rights Act was signed by President Johnson on August 6, 1965. Four days later, 300 black citizens in Selma went to the federal building to register to vote. Many of them were in their 70s and in their 80s. No tests this time, only one application form. If you needed help, help was provided. And the federal examiners, not state ones this time, addressed them as Mr. and Mrs. and Miss, an experience that many of them have never had registered to vote. A more democratic. Immediately, the Voting Rights Act was challenged as an unconstitutional intrusion of states' rights. White Southern politicians, fearing a shift of power with increased black registration, focused their anger on two sections, sections 4B and 5, which together require some states and some jurisdictions who had a history of discrimination in their voting laws to submit any change. Justice Department for what came to be known as pre-clearance. John Lewis, now longtime member of the House of Representatives, has stated that Section 5 became the heart of the voting rights act. Attacking that section became part of Republican presidential candidate Richard Nixon's 1968 Southern strategy to win the vote of white Southern Democrats. The first major Supreme Court decision about the Voting Rights Act came only a year later, in 1966, where the court ruled that those two sections were constitutional despite the state of South Carolina saying that it, it infringed upon the doctrine of the equality of the states. 
his opinion, Chief Justice Earl Warren said that the idea of equal sovereignty applied only to the terms for admission to the Union. Remember that phrase, equal sovereignty of the states. Three years later, the court ruled that the Voting Rights Act extended to laws which did not expressly prohibit black citizens from voting and had the effect of diluting their vote. For example, redrawing city lines incorporate more white residents so that it was more difficult for black city residents to be elected to city councils. In addition to being subject to lawsuits, the Voting Rights Act was, and it continues to be subject to reauthorization by the Congress. One such reauthorization came up during the Reagan administration. A key player in this reauthorization process was a former clerk for Justice a man by the name of John Roberts, who in 1981 was special assistant to Attorney General William French Smith. As special assistant, John Roberts' primary responsibility was voting Despite his working with a group of representatives and senators to limit the impact of the Voting Rights Act, the Congress reauthorized it as President Reagan signed the bill reauthorizing the Roberts. You might think where I'm going next is a bit of a digression. To tell the story of Selma and Shelby County, one has to reference, in my view, the election of 2000. For those of you who might have been three years old, let me give you some of the highlights. It's hard. The Democratic candidate, Al Gore, won the popular vote. Republican candidate, George W. Bush, won the electoral college after the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, called a halt to the manual recount of votes in the state of Florida. A state, which Bush won by 537 votes, and 60 million votes Prior to the election, State of Florida had hired companies to scrub voter rolls of ineligible voters. The company incorrectly flagged thousands of persons on voter lists, a disproportionate number of them black, who were then turned away at the polls. During the 2000 election, 180,000 votes were rejected in Florida due to poorly designed ballots or challenges during the recount. Three times as many rejected ballots were black voting precincts. Voters who were likely more likely to vote Democrat. The 2000 election was a huge wake-up call that the biggest political prize in this country could be subject to an incredibly close election. Using election law was clearly now going to be a clear political strategy for future presidential elections. represented by Ernest Montgomery, the sole black member of the city 
Council included three primarily white subdivisions. Lost re-election. The Department of Justice negated the election results under the Voting Rights Act. Edward Bloom, a former stockbroker who now has his own political organization to file lawsuits challenge Section 5, as well as other issues related to racial and ethnic classifications, read about this situation on the Department of Justice's website. He's the person picture next to Mr. Montgomery. He called the Shelby County lawyer and suggested that the county challenge Section 5. The lawsuit was filed in 2010, claiming that Section 5 violated federalism and that the section had accomplished its mission clearance was no longer necessary. The case reached the Supreme Court, where by now, the special assistant in the Reagan Department of Justice was now Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. As Chief Justice, Roberts had already signaled his views about Section 5 in the 2010 case. In dicta, Basically means opinions of a judge that are not determinative in the case. My way of explaining dicta is, oh, by the way, this is what I think about this. It has nothing to do with the case, but I just wanted to talk about it. Robert said that both Section B, 4B, which set the criteria for which jurisdictions would be covered by the law, and Section 5, preclearance, raised, quote, serious constitutional questions. And he referenced the idea of equal sovereignty of the states, which South Carolina had unsuccessfully raised in 1966. He pointed to current political conditions in the South, stated things have changed, noted noting black voter turnout and registration rates had gone up, and that there were now many black elected officials. His views were seen as a warning to Congress that it should revise those two sections, even though just four years earlier, the Congress had reauthorized those specific sections. Some have called this the Roberts Court Doctrine of One Last Chance. The political branches have one last chance to do something to get it right for the court's What Roberts had signaled as a possibility in 2010 became a reality. And what they did was very shrewd. They only declared unconstitutional Section 4, the coverage formula. But by declaring that section unconstitutional, preclearance went out, out the What had been dicta was controlling legal precedent now. Section 4, according to Roberts, violated the doctrine of equal sovereignty of the states. And current conditions had changed. Preclearance was no longer necessary. Though in 2006, Congress had said otherwise. So much for the deference of Congress. Professor Richard Hazen, a leading expert on election law, has described the opinion as a false minimalist opinion. While claiming to do very little, the court did a lot. The court completely sidestepped the issue of what standard of review would be used in future 
security of the law. Most disturbing was the fact that the court elevated the Tenth Amendment over the Fifteenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment says any powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states. We passed the Fifteenth Amendment specifically because the Confederate states were not doing enough to treat freed slaves equally. Michael McConnell, a conservative legal scholar, describes the doctrine of equal sovereignty in the states as, quote, made up. Even if Congress wants to revise Section 4, which is doubtful, it's now likely that any coverage formula is not going to pass review because states will be treated unequally. In her 37-page dissent, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg criticized the majority's ignoring congressional findings, findings that included the fact that there had been more Department of Justice objections between 1982 and 2004 than there had been between 1965 and 1982. She noted that in 2010, FBI transcripts included a conversation among white lawmakers in Alabama who feared that a possible ballot proposition on gambling would cause a spike in black voter turnout. In that conversation, black voters were referred to as aborigines, who would arrive at the polls in HUD-financed buses. Ginsburg wrote, these conversations occurred not in the 1870s or even in the 1960s. They took place in 2010. Hubris is a fit word Today's definition of the voting rights act. The quotation that will probably be the most famous from her dissent is this throwing out free clearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Representative John Lewis had attended the oral argument on Shelby. And on this day, he couldn't bear to be in the room and watch the news on his television in his congressional office. Edward Bloom, who made the call to Shelby County attorney, rejoiced on the steps of the court. Within days of the Shelby decision, North Carolina passed the voting law and Texas passed the most restrictive voting law in the country, a law, and students listen up, a law that permitted Texas-issued concealed handgun permits but not public university student IDs or tribal IDs, IDs to be used to vote. These voter ID laws are typically defended on the basis that they will prevent fraud. The question is, is there a problem with fraud, or is it a problem that doesn't exist? There's an important distinction between in-person fraud and election fraud. If someone tries to impersonate someone at a polling place, that's in-person fraud. If you try to vote and you're ineligible to vote, that's an example of in-person fraud. Election fraud exists of vote buying, rigging voting machines. A Loyola Law School study of one 
billion votes. Found 31 credible allegations, allegations of fraud. In-person fraud is almost entirely non-existent in the United States. Fraud emerged as an issue in the 2008 presidential election. Some of you may remember that during that election, there was a charge that a community organizing group called ACORN had stolen the election for Obama. Some members were indicted on a charge of filing false voter registrations on behalf of non-existent voters. But registering unqualified voters is very different than people actually voting. In the city of Philadelphia, there was film at a polling station of members of the new Black Panther Party, not affiliated with the former Black Panther Party, acting in a menacing way towards white voters as they entered the polling station. This film was played on certain media outlets. The Department of Justice charged only one member who had waived a billy club under Section 11 of the Voter Rights Act to prevent harassment at polling stations. But the erroneous idea that somehow Obama had been elected by fraud caught on. In the final debate with Obama, Senator McCain said that ACORN is now on the verge of perpetrating one of the greatest frauds in voter history. That was simply not true. Preparing for the 2012 presidential election, several states passed new voter IDs, ID laws. In the state of Pennsylvania, the leader of the state house, this is what he said. Voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania, done. Notice, there's no, there's no reference to protecting us from fraud. Voter suppression has always been about winning elections. Democrats and Republicans have done it, but it's always been about winning elections. In Tennessee, like Texas, a handgun carry permit can be used as ID when casting a ballot, but a student ID card cannot. Okay, so students, ID cards, out. Then, Tennessee recently lowered the age for older people to vote, absentee without excuse, from 65 to 60, and added public sector retiree cards as acceptable ID. More retired people, their publicly issued ID cards can vote. Their student ID cards can't. Students have filed a lawsuit and they're claiming that the law violates the 26th Amendment, which gives the vote to those who are 18 and older, and violates the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection. A primary reason given for the North Carolina law was to protect against fraud. But when asked about the actual one underscore actual occurrence of fraud, the North Carolina Board of Elections stated that there had been 11 suspicious registrations, but none had produced a criminal fraud charge. That case is being brought under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's, that's an important, and I just for a moment here with me, it's 
just a, an interesting moment. The burden of proof under the Voting Rights Act now has shifted dramatically. Whereas it had to be the state to prove that our changes in voting laws are not discriminating, now the burden of proof lies with an individual saying, this type of law is discriminatory. So resources and time are much more important now to bring the lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act. Now there was some good news this summer. This Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that Texas's strict photo ID law violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. However, the court has sent the, sent the case back to the U.S. District Court for some clarification on some points, and it's not exactly clear what the impact of that decision is going to be. In the Congress of the United States, legislation has been introduced to restrict the Voting Rights Act. But frankly, there is no proof that we're going to do that. The 2016 election voter suppression is, after all, about winning elections. The bottom line, the young, the elderly, blacks, Hispanics, and the poor are more likely to be affected by new restrictive voting laws. Is this the kind of democratic society we want to live in? Say we affirm the principle that voting is a key element of a democratic society, that human dignity is protected when an individual has the right and opportunity to select those who govern. I think it's the wrong question to ask, well, will my vote make a difference? I don't think Mrs. Rosenell Eaton has ever asked that question. Now, I think she would affirm that we, the people, are in this. Establishing justice, ensuring domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, and securing the blessings of liberty. We are in this together. And making access to the ballot wider is part of that. Voting is a way we say yes to be the people, a way we honor the dignity of all. We are in this together. 